0: Our scripture reading today is from Genesis 39, verses 1 through 10, and this is found on page 33 in your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that Bible uh, that's in your hands with you home as a gift. So let's read and hear the word of the Lord. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The blessing of the Lord was on all he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he's put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day by day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Good morning again. Thank you for being here with us uh, to worship, to celebrate together as a community. And uh, so glad that you are here as we continue our study in the book of Genesis. Uh, And as a pastor, one of the most helpful books that I've ever read is a book called Dangerous Calling by Paul Tripp. And I've led conversations on this book for uh, our our campus pastors, senior pastors at a retreat, and uh, even helped to facilitate a day of conversations around this for our our whole staff team a number of years ago. And uh, even with other pastors from across our denomination have read this book. And it's such a great book written for pastors uh, to help pastors navigate the unique kind of strangeness of the work and calling of what it is to be a pastor because uh, we we all know the stories, don't we? Uh, stories of pastors who have failed to navigate well, who ended up ruining their lives and uh, their ministries and people who they've worked with. Um, I can still remember exactly where I was in the seminary uh, kind of cafeteria area when I got a call from my dad saying that the that um, my high school youth pastor, he became the, the lead pastor of the church that I'd grown up in high school, middle school, uh, had, had failed, had, had resigned because of misusing church funds and sexual sin. And so books like this one have had an important part in my journey as a pastor seeking to live a life of faithfulness for the long haul. But I, I, I pulled this book out recently And I noticed the back of the book, and and on the back of the book, there were five pastors who had recommended, who had endorsed the book. You know, this book will change your life. It's a must-read, keep your integrity, etc. And as I scanned the list of names, it was sort of like a slap in the face because of five names on the back. And, and, and this book was published in, in 2012, so about seven years ago, the year we launched the Brookside Campus. Of five of those pastors who endorse the book, uh, one is, is no longer a Christian, has walked away publicly from Christian faith. Uh, one has been in the news for a ridiculous abuses of power. And a third has had an affair. I had to Google the other two, just to make sure that they were still okay. But it was this hard moment because, you know, I've read books by those guys. I've heard them speak at big national conferences. They all had led large, successful churches. It's just a sobering moment. And and honestly, moments like that that scare me to death because if three out of five of them didn't make it, then what hope is there for me? What what hope is there for any of us? Because no matter how successful you look, success without integrity is still failure. No matter how successful you look, success without integrity is still failure. All of us are at risk. Every single one of us. And those who think we aren't at risk... Those are the very ones of us who are most at risk of all. Because no matter how successful you look, success without integrity is just the beginning, the making of failure. And yet Joseph, in the passage that we just heard read this morning, Joseph doesn't cave. He he doesn't give in. And and we're going to see he had every reason to but he didn't how how was it that he that he didn't and I I need to know that answer we need to know how that works because I don't want to sabotage my family I don't want to sabotage our our church my life and I know that you don't either so as we continue here let, let me pray and then we'll look more closely at the story this morning father in heaven and we begin to talk about integrity there's a weightiness because none of us have been perfect in our lives and yet you show us here in your word what it what it might look like to live a life full of integrity even outside of the garden so i pray that we would hear you speak to us clearly now that we would be convicted where we need to be convicted, that we would be encouraged where we need encouragement, and that more than anything, we would lean on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen. Well, turn with me in, in one of the pew Bibles or pull it up on your phone if you haven't already to Genesis chapter 39. That's where we're going to be looking this morning. And last week, we were introduced to Joseph and his family. And, and we realized, that, you know, right from uh, the, the the get-go with Joseph's story that he's a part of a really messed up family. <laughs> uh, Jacob's dad, uh, or excuse me, Joseph's dad, his name is Jacob, Jacob has Two wives plus uh, what the text calls uh, refers to as wives concubines, two other women, sort of extra wives. (laughs) This is not a great recipe for family success. In fact, while polygamy was a common practice in this cultural context, the Bible never endorses polygamy. And in fact, every instance that it's on display in the scriptures, you just see how it just destroys and ruins. And, and uh, Joseph's life is no exception as we see this dynamic play out because Joseph is the son of Rachel… Uh, Rachel was Jacob's favorite of the four wives. And Joseph then becomes the favorite son. And this leads his brothers to hate him, to envy him, and even to get to the point where they are ready to kill him. They, they come this close to killing him. And then at the last minute, they just said, well, maybe let's not kill him. We don't get real any benefit other than just kind of revenge out of killing him. What if we saw, sell him? And then we can at least make some money. So they sell him to slave traders who take him away from his home. Joseph never sees his home again, down to Egypt. They lie to their father, tell him that Joseph is dead. And when Genesis 39 opens, we find Joseph in Egypt, enslaved. Whatever dreams that he had about what his life might have been, Whatever hopes he might have had about a family, uh, about, uh, you know, a relationship and having children and all, all of that has been, is, is gone. He is alone in Egypt, no one knows him, and he has every reason, humanly speaking, to doubt God's goodness and to just do whatever he wants to do, right? God, you've abandoned me, no one here knows me, I'll just live however I want to live. In some ways, Joseph then would be the last person that you would expect to be the model of integrity given his circumstances. Why does he just give up on God and just kind of try to get whatever pleasure he can out of life? And yet, he's the model of integrity. Now, look at verses 2 and 3. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master, and his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So so not only has Joseph not given up or turned away from God, but God is with him, and he has become incredibly successful, and his influence continues to grow. The author tells us three times early on that Everything that Potiphar has, he's entrusted to Joseph. It's like Joseph is the chief operating officer of of Potiphar Incorporated. He's in charge of of all the the day-to-day operations of this household and family. And that's the setting. And then the author skillfully introduces the tension that is going to drive the plot of the story forward. Verse 6. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and in appearance. So, so not only is Joseph super successful, he's also apparently sort of like a Chris Hemsworth type. <laughs> that's the, the picture that the author wants us to have. It's actually the exact same language that's used to describe his mom, Rachel, earlier in the text. And it doesn't take long for Potiphar's wife, who herself seems to be a bit like a a sort of a real housewife of ancient Egypt sort of type, to take notice. Verse 7, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. And if you're reading through the book of Genesis, or or if you've been here with us over these months that we've been studying this book together, you're going to realize Joseph's response to that is astounding because pretty much every other male character in the book of Genesis has failed sexually until this point. As a matter of fact, just one chapter over in Genesis 38, Judah, Joseph's older brother, actually goes looking sort of for sexual adventure. But here it comes looking for Joseph, and yet he still refuses to give in. So, so what kind of person refuses in that moment? Because it would be so easy, right, for, for Joseph to justify all that I've been through. Don't I deserve a little pleasure? Haven't I earned a little comfort? What kind of a person refuses in that moment? One who knows that success without integrity is still a Failure. In a world of compromise, Joseph is a rare example of someone who has integrity, in a world of compromise, Joseph is a rare example. Both, both in the past and in our contemporary world, Joseph is a rare example of integrity. Now, now what do I mean by integrity? We, we probably have all heard a definition of integrity that's something like, um, you know, integrity is what you do when, when no one else is looking. Or integrity is what you do when you're by yourself and no one else can see. Which is fine insofar as it, it goes. It's not a, a bad definition necessarily. The problem is, is that it only sort of focuses on doing. But, but true biblical integrity is rooted in being. It's rooted in who we are on the inside. It's about living a life before God, a life of, of, of an audience, living before an audience of one, a life of, of sort of seamlessness, of wholeness. It doesn't have fractures or cracks. Integrity is a costly commitment to live before God in everything. It's a costly commitment to live before God in everything. And just as a quick note here, we're talking about this. A week from Tuesday starts our Razor's Edge class that we do each fall here. And the core part of what we deal with in Razor's. what does it mean to live this kind of life of of wholeness, of of seamlessness, of integrity? If you've never taken that class, I'd encourage you uh, to jump in this fall. It's not too late to sign up for that. And here in the life of Joseph, this quality of integrity is on such powerful display. And actually that's the first thing I want to point out to us in this story is actually that integrity is constantly at risk. We look around at our culture and sort of the broad narrative in our cultures that we are so progressive as a culture. We, We are moving forward. We are advancing as a culture, but it's actually the opposite. We have simply returned to the sexualized world of the ancient past where abuse and exploitation in a world without limits was the norm, right? A culture that says we should just give in and follow our desires no matter what they are is actually a, a culture that's more old fashioned than the Bible. Do you realize that? We we've lived in a culture that's been so influenced by a judeo-christian worldview for so many years that it's almost hard for us to wrap our minds around, but to actually to go back to that these these are not ideas are not progressive or new, they actually go back to to ancient ideas. They're more old fashioned than the Bible. And we're so confused because we've said, as a culture, you can do whatever you want. There are no rules. Just don't go too far. Right? The culture baits us to the edge, right up to the line, and then shames us to death when we cross it. It says, make this kind of, you know, following in your desires, following your your wants, make that the ultimate quest. And yet, then we're surprised and shocked when we have people like Jeffrey Epstein or the Me Too movement or the Church Too movement. And because we live in this world, we have to recognize that integrity, and not just sexual integrity, by the way, all integrity, is constantly at risk. Because there's always pressure to compromise Pressure to, to cut corners, to do something that's just a little less than ethical. Remember if you were with us all the way back to, to Genesis chapter four. And in Genesis chapter four, that's the story of Cain and Abel, these brothers who one ends up killing the other. And God says to Cain, who kills his brother Abel, he says, Cain, watch out. Because sin, and he uses this metaphor of of a wild animal, sin is crouching, waiting to pounce on you. That's how sin works. We cannot live this life complacently because if we do, we will be overtaken. Sin is like an animal that is crouching, waiting to take us over. Which means that even if we don't go looking for sin, which sometimes we do, right? But even if we aren't, even if we are are trying to avoid it, it is coming for us. We can't let our guard down. But Joseph, he he isn't complacent. He is aware and he refuses. He refuses in this moment. Why? Why is he able to refuse? Why does he refuse? Well, take a look at verses 8 and 9. And, and even before I read verses 8 and 9, I want you to notice right off the bat what the reasons aren't. You know, it's not that he's sort of some kind of a prude or that he's some kind of a repressed person. No, what is it? Look at verse 8. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. And he's not kept back anything in the house uh, he, is not, he is not greater than the house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except for you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And Joseph names sort of three things here in this text. The first is that he says, I, I can't and won't do this because of my responsibility to, to my work. That's where he starts. I, I'm in charge of all this. I, I can't do this because of my work. Uh, And and two, it sort of reasons escalate. I can't and won't do this because you are a married woman, married to my boss, in fact. And then third, ultimately, I can't, I, I won't do this because it's against God and His design for a life of flourishing And again, on on this Labor Day weekend, I don't want us to miss the centrality of Joseph's work and the workplace here in this account. Temptation comes to him in his place of work. In the place of where he spends the majority of his time. We need to expect that. Because the workplace is, for most of us, where we spend the majority of our time, whether that's at home, whether that's in an office, whether it's on the job site, a majority of our waking hours, most of the time, are spent at work. Those are the kinds of places where temptation can come, just as easy as anywhere else. And also, central to his refusal is the effect that it would have on his work. That's where he starts. How can I, I do this? this would, my, my, my work would be so dramatically affected. I think it's interesting because all sin has a devastating effect on our personal relationships. We we know that. It breaks relationships. But it, it also has a profound impact on the work that we've been given to do. It has a horizontal dimension in our relationship And in the work that we've been given to do but it also and this is where Joseph ends and this is so central to him this is the grounding of all of it it has a vertical dimension not only does it affect others but it affects God how could I do this great evil against God and that's the second thing we learn in the story and that is that integrity sees sin for what it really is Integrity sees sin for what it really is. So often we use the word sin to describe desserts, right? It's kind of this, it's almost become a word that doesn't have a strength of meaning. It's become watered down in our, in our world. That It's a playful word or, or something, it's like a white lie. But integrity sees sin for what it really is. It's a violation of God's design. It's a refusal to view him and treat him as he is in his holiness and his beauty, and his love, and his goodness. One author describes sin as as the vandalism of God's design, a vandalism of peace and wholeness, that it takes this good thing that God has made and it just destroys it, it vandalizes it. But perhaps nobody puts it better in our cultural idiom than Francis Spufford. I always have to tweak this uh, quote slightly when I use it so I don't get fired, especially on a a worship together Sunday when we have more younger kids with us. But he writes this, sin is the human propensity to mess things up. Not just our tendency to lurch and stumble and screw up by accident, our passive role as agents of entropy. It is our active inclination to break stuff, stuff here including moods, promises, relationships we care about, and our own well-being and other people's. I and mean, that starts to get right into where I live my life. Breaking stuff, moods, promises, relationships we care about. Joseph sees sin for what it really is. And in fact, he is one of the only characters in the book of Genesis to let God define what is good and bad, what is good and evil, and then. Live out that design. Right, so when we hear that language uh, back in verse 9, how could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That, that, it's the same word for the knowledge of the tree, that wickedness there, the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. We should, as readers, we remember all the way back to the beginning of the story where Adam and Eve are given this choice. Are they going to trust God to define good and bad for them? Are they going to trust God to be the one who defines right and wrong, good and evil, or are they going to seize that power for themselves? And they do. They, they fail the test. They choose to define right and wrong for themselves, and they unleash chaos into God's world and death, and they're cast out of the garden. But Joseph, he gives us a glimpse of what it is To still live a life of integrity outside the garden. He takes his cues on what is good, what is evil, what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad, what is flourishing from God. Joseph shows us a different kind of life is possible. A life of integrity even outside the garden. He knows that success without integrity is still failure. Because Joseph sees what sin really is, he refuses. And more than just refused, Joseph ultimately flees. He actually runs away. That's how persistent and forceful this has become. He hasn't run away the first time, but her advances, her requests, these are not just a one-off thing from her. She continues to persist. It's daily. It escalates, and yet he persists in his refusal. And finally, in verses 11 and 12, here's what happens. But one day he went into the house to do his work, And none of the men of the house was there in the house, and she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand, and he fled and got out of the house. And this is the next thing we learn here in this account, that integrity means being able to say no. Joseph says no to Potiphar's wife, and really he also says no to himself, to his own desires, which is astounding, right? We actually see someone saying no to their own desires and to pressure from the outside. On so many levels, our culture today, that saying no to yourself or saying no to desires is considered harmful, right? Actually, we're damaging ourselves if, if we deny ourselves following our desires, and we celebrate athletes and musicians who have said no to countless things to be great at what they do but in the same breath we condemn human beings for saying no to certain desires but friends true freedom is found not in giving in to every craving or following every desire that we have that's that's not freedom and that's ultimately slavery it enslaves us to our desires until We're actually not free to do and be who we were created to be. Because that's what what true freedom is, is the ability to fulfill what we were designed for. To fulfill our purpose. When saying no isn't just a one-time thing either. I mean, I wish, right? Wouldn't that be great if, you know, every temptation just came one time? (laughs) And if you were able just to say no once and then it's like, okay, done. And you're just never even going to have a desire for that thing ever again. I mean, wouldn't that be amazing? But that's not the world in which we live, right? In fact, for most of us, for most of our lives, there are going to be certain things that are just going to continue to be temptations. And so learning to say no, building the discipline to say no, becoming the kind of person who is able to discern what is good and evil and follow God and trust Him and say no is a lifelong journey. Saying no isn't just a one-time thing. It certainly wasn't for Joseph, and it will not be for us either. And in the face of those repeated temptations, the strategy may come to a point where dramatic action is required, a dramatic action that may mean fleeing or the equivalent. If you are facing an affair at work, it might mean quitting your job even before you have another one lined up. If you're struggling with Internet content, it may mean getting rid of your smartphone, deleting your Facebook account. If it's been an issue of, of certain people or places, it might mean taking a different route home from work. It might take you longer, but you don't drive past that place. Maybe it's you stop visiting that restaurant. Maybe you, you switch health clubs where you work out. I don't know what the thing is, but sometimes it requires the dramatic action of fleeing that I'm getting away from this before it destroys. Now, even as I wrote those sentences this week, even as I reflected on that this week, I thought, you know, even to me, even writing this, it seems like, but is that a little bit extreme? Are you really going to tell people they might need to quit a job to preserve their integrity? I mean, that, doesn't that seem a little extreme? But I think that's what the enemy, the evil one, and, and as Christians we do believe that there is a spiritual reality and there is real evil spiritual forces in the universe that the enemy the tempter wants you to believe to say yeah that's so extreme that maybe that's for other people but that's not for you you've got this under control you're stronger than they are you can stop you know when enough is enough friends do not believe the lie flee Say no while you still can, Because so often with these things too, a few lesses, yeses, a few moments of giving in to that temptation put you in a place where saying no becomes increasingly difficult and almost impossible. This is where you get in these patterns of addiction. Flee while you still can. Now, what happens next in the story? Joseph, he flees, right? He preserves his integrity. He obeys God. He does the right thing. So now what's going to happen in the story, right? Potiphar's wife, she repents. She becomes a Christian. They start a, a church right there in Potiphar's house. It's a revival, breaks out. No. It's not even close. And she lies. She accuses Joseph of being the instigator. And worse, she says, Look, I've got his clothes. And interestingly enough, right, this is the second time in Joseph's life where he's been stripped of his clothes and then lied about. And besides, she says, He's a Hebrew. You know you can't trust them, you know how they are. Twice she points that out, derogatorily calling him a Hebrew. Right? Racism, attributing negative qualities to someone because of their ethnicity, goes back a long way. And even today, right? I mean, you want to look at the example of someone who's wrongly imprisoned in part because of their racial, ethnic background? Joseph. Even today, innocent lives are taken or imprisoned because of racial stereotypes. It happened to Joseph. It happens today. God, forgive us for that, and may we work for justice for those who have been wrongly imprisoned, for those who are wrongly accused. And this leads us to the hardest lesson of the story, and that is that integrity is costly. And sometimes doing the right thing can actually lead you to a place, humanly speaking, of, of worse, much worse situation. If you don't cut corners at work, you might miss the promotion. If you're unwilling to have sex outside of marriage, you may have a really hard time finding a date, finding a spouse. If you refuse to cheat on the, death, uh, on the test, there's a chance your grades are going to be affected. Maybe even a possibility of what schools you might be accepted into someday. And if Joseph had just slept with her, he might have avoided years in prison. But instead, he has his integrity, which shockingly is worth more to him. If you look at verses 20 and 23, And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And there he was in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor on the side of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Joseph's integrity just continues here. And whatever was done, he was the one who did it. And the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. You see, integrity costs Joseph everything, but it becomes the place of greatest success. And what I want us to not miss here, to be so clear this morning, is that it's not that integrity leads to his success. I mean, that is true. But the integrity itself is the success. It's, it's, it's good in its own right. It's a good in itself, even if nothing else happens. Integrity is the success. And for Joseph and we'll see this next week, had he not been thrown into prison, he would have never gone to work for Pharaoh. He would have never gone to work for Pharaoh if he had not done that. He would have never been able to save God's people from famine. So betrayal, slavery, prison, all lead to a place where God uses Joseph to rescue his people. Integrity, yes, in this moment cost him everything, but he gained so much more. I don't know if our integrity this morning will lead us to such places. I don't know if any of us are on the path to become Pharaoh's number two. And for many of us, we don't know how the end of our story is going to play out, right? We have the benefit in reading Joseph's story. We know it from the time that he's 17 years old all the way to the point of his death. We don't know how our stories will turn out. The final chapters of our life have still to be written. And there may be way more heartache, way more suffering for us, ahead than joy, for now. But integrity is the success, and it will be rewarded, if not now, then in the end. And so finally this morning, we see that integrity is possible. It is possible. How? Well, well, we see the answers to that question in the bookends of the story, the two end, the beginning and the end, the the bookends of the story, they are the key to understanding the middle. This kind of integrity, you see it in verse 3 and in verse 23. What is the answer? The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. You see, integrity is only possible in the with God life. Integrity is possible, but it's only possible in relationship with the God who we were designed to live on. We were never meant to live this life in our own human limitations and power, even in the garden, right? Actually, that's what happens, is that Adam and Eve try to live this life in their own limitations outside of relationship and dependence on God. It's only in a relationship with Him that we can have that seamless life of integrity, of wholeness, And if you're a Christian, God lives inside of you by a spirit. Not only is there forgiveness for the failures, the same spirit that empowered Jesus to resist temptation in the wilderness, the same spirit who powerfully raised Jesus from the dead, he lives in you and he is with you and he is for you. That's how Joseph resisted. And it's how you can too. You are not a slave. You have been set free to follow God for your good and the good of those around you. Success without integrity is failure, but integrity with Jesus is the very best life. Friends, Jesus is the true and better Joseph who faced temptation in the wilderness for 40 days without ever faltering. Jesus who was falsely accused. Jesus who was ridiculed. Jesus who died and rose again, defeating death and making the restoration of ruined integrity possible. Because friends, there is hope this morning, no matter how badly your integrity may have been undermined and in the lord's supper we find both healing and forgiveness as well as hope and power we find healing and forgiveness for all the ways that we have failed and rebelled and blown our integrity And we also find hope and power to live a life of integrity in relationship with Jesus. Because forgiveness and wholeness are only possible in relationship with Jesus. And the Lord's Supper is a picture of that relationship. It's an invitation to that relationship. It's a renewal, a refreshment of that relationship. As you eat the bread and drink the juice, you're declaring your need for forgiveness and also binding yourself afresh placing anew your trust in the one who makes a life of wholeness and joy and integrity possible.